So we're working through the, the book of Revelation and, and probably working through as a loose, t- uh, loose uh, description of it. We're, we're, we're not able to cover the entire book of Revelation and that's, that's a 21 chapters. 22 chapters in five weeks is daunting. So we decided to look through it as a, uh, as a, as a, as a fairy tale story because there's a lot of things that happen in the book of Revelation that align with fairy tales. There's a dragon. There's a... Uh, a, a hero, there's a damsel in distress, and this week we're going to talk about the fact that there's actually a fairy tale wedding, and there's a great victory to be won over the villain. So every fairy tale wedding, or every fairy tale that you, you've seen, has a fairy tale wedding at the end, and, and it's kind of inscribed on our culture, right? We all want the fairy tale wedding. In fact, uh, as a singles minister, I partake regularly in our attempts to recreate the fairy tale wedding, right? I do a lot of weddings myself. And, and, and it's not just that we want the fairy tale wedding. You don't just want the dress to look right. You don't just want everything to be perfect. It's not just about the venue and the event. It's about that the right person rhymes, winds up with the right person. We want Romeo with Juliet. We want Belle with the Beast. We want Snow White with some unnamed man on a horse. Prince Charming is what he goes by. I'm skeptical myself. But that's what we want. We don't want Belle to wind up with anybody but the beast, right? We want it to be the right story, and we want to be with the right person. And I don't know about you. I don't know how your story is going today. But for many of us, you may feel like today and in this place and in this time in your life, the fairy tale somewhere got derailed. And that you are matched up either with the wrong person You're matched up with the wrong circumstances. You're matched up with the wrong situation. This is not how my fairy tale was supposed to go. This is wrong. I'm not with the person I'm supposed to be. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm in somebody else's story. And maybe you think you're in the wrong job. Maybe you think you're in the wrong family. Maybe you think you're you're married to the wrong person. And something didn't follow the script that you thought you were supposed to have. Well, what I want us to do today is I want us to look at the fairy tale ending, the fairy tale wedding that God provides for his church. And recognize that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a part of the church. And so there actually is a fairy tale wedding, a fairy tale ending available for you. And so what I want us to do today is we're going to be in Revelation 19. We're going to bounce around a little bit um, in the surrounding chapters. But basically, I want us to look at this as a three-step Revelation's Guide to Wedding Planning. Revelation's Guide to Wedding Planning. And the first thing we need to do in order to be in the wedding is we need to break up with our ex. We need to break up with our ex. We start in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and He's avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God! all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So we join Revelation in full-on celebration. And everybody's there. And it's, it's a big deal, right? This is like 
Freebird, but with more harp solos. This is the level that we're going here. The 24 elders and the beasts from uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, not the beast out of the sea, but but the, the, the beasts that are worshiping at the throne, they're there. The angels are there. The saints who have gone on before, they're all there and they're worshiping God. And the reason why they're worshiping Him is because apparently a prostitute named Babylon has been thrown down. Now, this may shock you a bit, because if you read the Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus in the Gospels is friends to prostitutes. He forgives them. He loves them. He cares for them. Why isn't he helping this woman? Well, this woman is not actually merely a prostitute. She's something much greater. She's something much worse in verse 2, it says, For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute. She corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he's avenged on her the blood of his servants. What this woman has done, and it's a metaphor, it's an allegory, what this woman has done is she has corrupted the earth, and those that she could not corrupt, those she couldn't turn against God, she actively sought to destroy them. So who is this woman? Well, let's look in chapter 17. Starting in verse 3. It says, and he carried me, this is an angel carrying John away, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. You should be familiar with that beast. This is the beast out of the sea. This is the Antichrist. We talked about him last week. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This description of the woman, who she probably is, who she probably represents, is culture and society. Now, before you, you run way into the culture wars, not all culture is bad. We are a part of culture. We're a part of society. Not all culture is bad. We don't need to oppose everything in culture. We don't need to go be hermits somewhere. What this woman represents is culture and society that is actively and directly opposed to the will of God and is pursuing to destroy those who will not get in line, who will not conform themselves to culture's ideals. All of us conform to culture. Culture desires conformity. Sometimes that's a good thing. We're all dressed here today. That's because we've conformed to culture. Thank you. But sometimes culture asks, asks us to be along with things that we don't want to be along with, that God actively tells us, no, 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 you don't go that way. And what this woman represents is when culture steps in and rather than marginalizing, rather than, rather than ignoring uh, nonconformity, actively seeks to destroy God's people. And notice this harlot, she's drunk with a cup overflowing with blood, the blood of the saints, those who would not conform. And notice who she's coupled with. She's coupled with the beast, the Antichrist. This is supposed to be sort of a romantic, sort of an illicit romantic lover type relationship between her and the beast. Now the beast represents systems, institutions, powerful, uh, powerful people, or powerful institutions that abuse their power, that oppress, and that actively keep people under thumb. It's really what the Antichrist is. It may be a person, but it's also the institutions in place. So this woman, society, coupled with institutions of power, are actively pursuing the destruction of the saints. And that's why everybody's celebrating in 19, because this woman has been gotten rid of. And how has this happened? Well, verse 16 tells us of chapter 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. 
They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal, their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. This woman is destroyed, this prostitute is destroyed, not by God directly, but God works in such a way as to, to destroy the relationship between the two. Their enmity towards others has turned towards each other, and the beast destroys his lover. And this is why you see people praising God in chapter 19. It's not just what he has done. It's how he has done it. And I think Jesus actually brings up this concept. In one of the Gospels, he's accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he says, that's ridiculous. Why would, if I was connected with Satan, why would I be casting out my own troops? Why would I be standing against myself? And then he says the famous quote, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation 17. The kingdom of Satan begins to be divided against itself and it falls apart. The dragon's minions begin to turn on each other. Now throughout history, we have been invited, human beings believers included, have been invited to partake with the harlot, to go and be with her. In the Old Testament, this was idolatry. And if you read the Old Testament, as we've been doing all year long, we've been reading through the Scriptures, it shows that idolatry is likened to visiting a prostitute, to prostituting yourself with someone that's not your husband, not your spouse. That's the image that it gives. In Proverbs, wisdom is pictured as a good woman who's faithful and true whereas foolishness is pictured as a prostitute who's tempting to lure you into destruction. And in today's world, the prostitute, the harlot, calls to you as well. Again, culture's not bad. It's not evil. There are elements of culture that beckons to us away from the path that God would have us on. We're trained in this way from a young age. We're groomed from a young age. Things like, it's my money. I can do with it what I want. If I want to give it away, great. If I don't, if I want to spend it all on myself, I can do that because it's my money. Maybe you were raised in a family that, that actively pursues division and secrets and deceit and abuse. And so that's what you think families like. And so you perpetuate it again and again and again in your own family. We've been groomed to think that our free time is for ourselves and not towards deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ. We tack that on to the end of the day. I myself find myself guilty of that. We find our jobs not to be about improving the culture around us and lifting other people up, but instead our jobs are about climbing the ladder and taking advantage of people and only being with people, friends with people, when they are useful to us. And when they stop being useful, we discard them, just like the beast discards the harlot. Even the church. We've been groomed to come into these doors and expect to get something out of this. And the reason why this isn't anything new is because we live in a culture that wants us to please ourselves. We live in a self-gratifying culture. And I think this is why your fairy tale's gotten derailed. It's because instead of pursuing the fairy tale, often we've pursued the harlot. We've pursued the prostitute. We've pursued something that we're not supposed to pursue. In fact, the harlot isn't your fairy tale. Whatever she t looks like, whatever she acts like to you, whatever form she takes in your life, she's not the fairy tale. She's more like a crazy ex. She's calling you, she's texting you, he's calling you, he's texting you, and he's like, it's going to be different this time, baby, I promise. Just come on back. We're going to make it all about you. Idols promise to make it all about you. 
until they've got you hooked. And then they offer less and less while demanding more and more until eventually they take everything and give you nothing. Just like a crazy ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. I think this is why it's gotten derailed. Because it's always about the idol. And this is why you need to break up with her. Look at uh, Revelation 18.4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This idea of coming out, remember, she's called Babylon, which is a reference to Babylon, the city, right, where the Israelites were exiled, or where Judah was exiled. They're called to come out of her. Much like Lot and his family was called out of Sodom and Gomorrah before Sodom was destroyed, Lot was called out. She, God's calling us out and saying, leave that city behind, leave that idol behind, leave that, that X behind, make her an X, delete her phone number, whatever it is that you've got to do to get rid of him and be free. And come to me. Now again, we don't need to be hermits and go and leave culture behind. That's not what I'm saying. But there are things in our culture that for whatever reason are attractive to us and corrupt us. And some things that corrupt you may have no effect on me. But we have to be aware of what's going on. We need to break up with the part of culture that entices us to abandon our pursuit of Jesus Christ and instead leads us to outright opposition to the kingdom. We need to break up with forms of entertainment that are merely about gratifying ourselves. We need to break up with a work-life balance that's skewed toward 80-hour work weeks. We need to break up with a worldview that views everything that happens through a lens of how does this affect me first? Before we think about how does this affect other people? We need to break up with a worldview that considers other people to be the enemy and that fear mongers so much that we begin to resent and hate people that have different opinions and viewpoints than our own rather than viewing them as objects of reconciliation, of our love, and people that we can give the truth to. We need to hear the voice of God, just like in 18.4. Come out, leave it behind. Now, I don't know if anything I just said resonated with something that you've got personally in your life, but I guarantee you that when I talk about something that pulls you away from your pursuit of God, something that distracts you from your pursuit of God, whether it's something truly evil or maybe something good that you've allowed to become the most important thing, I guarantee you, you can think of something. And my encouragement to you this week is to spend time in prayer Pray that God would rescue you, that would call, he would call you out from that. And some of you may say, well, I don't want to break up with it. I like it. Even that I would take to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to leave it behind. I enjoy this. I like this. I don't know how my life is going to be different without this. Bring that before him. Trust him to transform your heart. That's what he does. Because we can't leave the harlot. We can't leave the prostitute on our own. We don't, we're not that strong. But the nice thing about God is after he calls us out, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us alone. So the next thing we need to do is we need to get ready for the wedding. We need to get ready for our wedding. Look at verse 6 of chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I'm going to stop right there. Notice the comparison between this woman and the harlot. This woman is different. 
The harlot is clothed in fine jewelry, multicolored robes, and again, this is a metaphor. There's nothing wrong with jewelry and, and nice clothes. But she's dressed this way to entice and distract people from their pursuit of Jesus Christ. What's the bride dressed in? A simple, fine linen robe. And the robe represents purity, faithfulness to her husband. Speaking of purity, one is presented as a prostitute. The other one is presented as somebody who has slept around, who's, who's had many lovers. The harlot, in fact, sleeps with, and another biblical way to say sleeps with is lays with. She lays with kings. She lays with powerful business leaders. Whereas the bride of Christ doesn't lay with anybody. Instead, she lays down her life, just as her husband did, in order to rescue and redeem her. The harlot, ironically enough, is destroyed by her lover. The bride, on the other hand, is not destroyed by her lover. In fact, she's, she's lifted up by her husband, the king. She's resurrected by him. And the way he does that is, not, is by dying for her. So rather than destroying her, he actually elevates her by dying himself. And again, this, the celebration isn't just the celebration of the wedding. Remember, like we talked about, the fairy tale's not good unless everybody's where they're supposed to be. So the celebration isn't just that there's this amazing fairy tale wedding taking place. It's that the bride, the princess, the damsel in distress is actually ready to get married. This is a prearranged marriage. This is an arranged marriage, and it's been arranged since before the foundation of the earth. That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would wed his people, would marry the corporate body of Christ, the church. And it says she's ready. Now, how has she been made ready? Well, it says the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, what does this mean, the righteous deeds? Now, you might think, oh, does that mean works? Well, maybe to some extent. We'll talk about that. But in Scripture, whenever fine linen garments are handed out, it's always God handing them out. It's usually God handing them out. And it's something, a gracious gift. It's not anything that that person does on their own. So here I think the fine linen garment is... Jesus Christ giving his righteousness, his purity to the bride of Christ, to the, his bride, who you and I both know isn't pure because we're sinners. In fact, in one of the gospel stories, there's a, a wedding parable that's told and there's a guy who shows up to the wedding. Now, the, the, the metaphor in 19, uh, in Revelation 19 actually shifts a little bit because on one level, we are as the corporate body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ, but as individuals, it's almost treated like we're attendees at the wedding. Does that make sense? Right? So like as a body, as a group, we're the bride of Christ, but as an individual, you're more like a guest at the wedding. And so in this parable, somebody shows up to this wedding that Jesus is talking about, and they don't have the wedding clothes. They're not wearing the right clothing. And he says, what are you doing here? Who let you in here without the, without the right garment? Get out. And he throws, them, he throws them out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this story, then, you are given the opportunity to put on the righteous deeds, the righteous garment of Jesus Christ, and that can stand in for your righteousness. So imagine being invited to the nicest wedding ever. So imagine that uh, when Prince George decides to get married again, he's like four. But imagine getting in invited to his wedding and, and you're like, oh, I'm so excited to go. And you look at your closet and you're like, I have nothing. But let's say the greatest fashion designer ever gives you a call and says, hey, I want you to wear one of my outfits, one of my pieces, articles of clothing to this wedding. What would you do? I'm going to take the thing from the person that I probably won't recognize their name, but I know that they're really good at their job, so I'm going to take that. Unless it's completely ridiculous, then I probably won't put it on. Jesus Christ is like this amazing tailor. 
And he's seen the garments of our works. He's seen the garments of our failed attempts to make ourselves right with God. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't need to wear that to the wedding. That's not appropriate for the wedding. Instead, let me make you a garment made out of my own flesh and blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you can wear that and you'll be accepted. Now, I don't know anybody that thinks they are more righteous than Jesus Christ. Whether you believe of him in him as the Son of God or not, pretty much everybody would say, Jesus Christ was a better person than I was. So would you rather have Jesus' righteous deeds standing in for you, or would you rather trust what you yourself have done? That's a no-brainer to me. I'm going to trust in the work, in the craftsmanship, in the garment that Jesus gives me, which is his own righteousness that was bought for me on the cross and secured for me in the resurrection. And I'm putting that on. And it fits perfectly. Now, it also says righteous deeds of the saints. Sometimes, often, righteous deeds can mean doing good works, right? Whenever you get dressed, right, this, this, these, this outfit that I have on here, uh, we accessorize, right? We're a people that like to accessorize, right? Got my, got my, my bag, I got my jewelry, right? I've got my nice watch here, all, all excited, right? The righteous deeds that we do, once we've been clothed in the garment, think of it like accessorizing. It's personalizing. These are the things that you do in response to God's great love, His great work for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Great. I accept that. I believe that. I'm right with Him. And then we respond in worship and in doing things that He's called us to do. That's discipleship. This is pursuing Jesus Christ in response to his pursuit of us. So let me ask you this. Why is it so hard? We have this great opportunity to get ready for a wedding, to leave behind this, this thing that, that pulls us down, that distracts us from, from our pursuit of Jesus Christ, from living out this. But why is it so hard? It's because we're inundated with distractions, entertainment, temptations. Sure, many of you are probably offered things that, that are everybody would say that's sin and you keep it private, right? Illicit sexual things, greed, anger, deceit. But a lot of us are distracted by really good things that we've just made the most important thing. Things like work, school, relationships, family. We find our identity in these things. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a student. I am a fill in the blank. We make compromises and we worship things that are probably good things but not the most important things. And if you think that like, ah, Travis, I, I, I think I'm pretty good in this area. Look what happens in verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I, this is John, the apostle John, fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called as a fisherman to follow him, saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, met a, a, some form of, of Moses and, and, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, met them, talked with them, saw the resurrected Jesus, did miracles, saw Jesus do miracles. He accidentally worships an angel in the midst of having the greatest vision probably anybody has ever had. If he can fall into that trap, so can you and so can I. And we do often. So how do we do? What do we do? How do I get start? Get, how do I how do I get ready for this wedding? How do I how do I get, start getting cleaned up? What do I do? Because you all get cleaned up. We take showers and baths before a wedding, right? 
How do I cling to this testimony of Jesus that keeps coming up in the book of Revelation? Well, you cling to the Word of God. We cling to the Word of God. Now remember, the Word of God, yes, is this, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. But remember that when John talks about the Word of God, the Word of God in John, his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was, and the Word was with, He was with God in the beginning. We cling to Christ, who is the incarnate Word of God. We cling to Him. He's our coming King. He's the husband. He's, he's our deliverer. He's our hero. He's the hero in the story. We hold fast to Him. We cling to Him. We don't waver in our faith. You don't believe the accusations that Satan lays against you when you're not living your best life and you're like, God doesn't want anything to do with me. That's guilt. That's shame. That has no place in the life of the Christian. If you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you get to reject that and you say, I don't believe that. That's an attack of Satan. We don't use our power and, and influence to corrupt and oppress other people. Instead, we embrace them and love them and lift them up. That's how we cling to Christ. We cling to Him in everything. You cling to Him in your marriage. When it's falling apart, when you want to leave, you cling in faith that God is going to take this thing that seems really broken right now and you hold on to it. And you say, Lord, I'm trusting You to redeem it, to rescue it. We cling to Him when our children need somebody who's a better parent than I am. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like my little girls deserve a better parent than me. I even shared this morning. I've been snappy and kind of frustrated lately, and I think I've verbally taken it out on some people. Even had to apologize for something this morning. My kids need a better parent than I can be, but let's be honest. What I can give them is Jesus Christ. I can point them to Christ, and He can be the better parent. And He can work through me in that too. Because there's grace and there's forgiveness. So if you wish you were a better parent, cling to Christ. Trust in Him. We cling to Him on our job when we're afraid that we're not as successful as we think we should be. For some of you, that's your fairy tale. It's climbing that ladder. Recognizing that Jesus Christ calls us to be faithful wherever we are. That's real success, is being faithful. We cling to Him in our singleness when loneliness feels crushing. And we remember that He has not forgotten us. We cling to Him when we drive, when we wake up, when we lay down. When we watch sports. When we go to the movies. We cling to our King in everything because our King is everything to us. That's why we cling to Him. Now, I know this is really hard and this is difficult. And often it seems like the enemy gets the upper hand. He does. It seems that way to me. Had a conversation about it yesterday. But we need to begin to enjoy the security of our marriage. We need to enjoy the security of our marriage. So the rest of 19 and chapter 20 switches tone. It goes from this nice wedding to like the end of Avengers. It's like full-on warfare, battles, right? You're just waiting on like Iron Man to show up. It's, it's crazy. Um, but you know how fairy tales actually work? Uh, usually the hero makes sure that the damsel in distress is rescued and safe, and then he goes and fights the last battle. Then he makes sure that the villain can't hurt him or hurt her anymore. And this is exactly what happens. Look at how Jesus is described in 1911. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This white horse 
uh, is, is white still the symbol of purity, right? Still purity, but don't think of purity as like this passive thing that's given. This is purity that's intrinsic to who Jesus is. And because it's on a war horse, think of this as purity weaponized. So this is now an offensive weapon uh, that is used by Jesus Christ. Uh, against his enemies. And it says, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now remember, what's about to take place is, is the total defeat of any and all who oppose Jesus. So this includes the beast, this includes the, the false prophet, the harlot's already been defeated, and this also includes all those who do not believe, which makes us feel uncomfortable. And you read the slaughter that's about to take place, and you think, wow, that's kind of overkill, isn't it? The reason why John's writing this way is showing you who Jesus Christ is. He has every right to judge those who have opposed him. He's been gracious. He's been kind. He's allowed this to go on, and now he's putting an end to it to keep him safe and to keep his bride safe. Actually, just to keep his bride safe. Jesus is perfectly safe. And so this is what's happening. And so he's, he's just in what he's about to do. Keep reading. Uh, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and a name in which he is called is the Word of God, as we talked about, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. Now these are probably either angels or these are the saints, and they act almost as witnesses against those who've persecuted. They're not actually actively involved in the fight. They're just there saying, yes, this is righteous, this is good, this is what should take place. Verse 15, And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. His weapon is the word, now proceeding from His mouth. Again, think of every fairy tale hero that you know of. They have some kind of magical device that gets them the victory, right? King Arthur has Excalibur. Aladdin has his lamp. Jesus is and has the Word of God. And it's all He needs to have victory over His enemies. And look what happens in verse 19. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against Him. And He was sitting on the horse and against His army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which it deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. This victory is assured. The bride is safe. The description of the battle is so short. The description of Jesus is longer than the description of the battle. That's how not in doubt this contest is. Now, if you read on in verse 7 uh, of chapter 20, and then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations and are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, there's two ways to read this. One is, this is after a literal thousand years where Jesus Christ is reigning on earth and then Satan kind of rises up and he's ultimately defeated in the end. The other way to read this is that a thousand years doesn't literally mean a thousand years, but means a long time. And this is a second description of the defeat of the beast and the false prophet in 19. It's just focused on the dragon rather than those two individuals. Regardless of how you interpret it, everybody agrees Jesus Christ is victorious. There's no question about that, that the bride is finally secure. 
The bride is safe. She no longer has to worry about temptations. She doesn't have to worry about distractions. She can focus and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. She doesn't have to worry about anybody trying to destroy her, to kill her, to oppress her. She is free and she's happy with her king. Now I know it's hard to believe today, but that victory that Jesus will win in the future, that victory is ongoing. There's some victories, small victories, that we can win even today. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to believe that. And I think it's one of the reasons why we keep going back to the harlot again and again and again. It's because we're afraid. It's because we're insecure. We're afraid that what we really believe, what we just read, is actually just a fairy tale and it's not one that comes true. We're afraid that when you close the book, when you walk out of the church, when you, when you open your eyes from praying, that, that all this is just going to disappear and you have to go back to the real world, right? There's no kingdom coming. There's no king on a white horse. There's no magical sword of God to rescue us and deliver us. And so we run back to the apparent safety of our comforts, our pleasures, the little worlds and the little manipulations because we go back to the real world and only little kids and fools believe in fairy tales. Well, the Bible has something to say about that too. In Luke chapter 18, verses 16 to 17, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me, for such as these belong the kingdom of God. People that believe in fairy tales, the kingdom of God belongs to them. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, through 31, Paul says, God used the, the things of the foolish to shame the wise. People who thought they were too sophisticated for the gospel, guess what? That foolish thing is actually their shame because fools believe in fairy tales. We need to trust in Christ as we resist the temptations and the deceptions that the world whispers to us. She tells us that it's all just a fallacy, that the weapons that we've been given by God, faith, hope, Love, generosity, perseverance, the gospel, even the word of God, these things are feeble and they're outdated. They're not weapons of war in our day and age. She tells us that our king isn't coming, he's not going to rescue us, and he's left us to die. And when we meet with these challenges, these temptations, we have got to cry out to God because we cannot stand against them on our own. You need to have the cry of a child, the cry of a fool. Deliver us, protect us, rescue us. And then we have to do one more thing. My favorite personal fantasy story, favorite fairy tale, is The Lord of the Rings. And in the movie version, with Kate Blanchett narrating, which who wouldn't want Kate Blanchett narrating anything? I'd, me drinking a coffee or something, I'd want her to narrate. She's narrating this battle between Sauron, the great villain, and, and the kings of, 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 and, and rulers of Middle-earth. And, and, and the king of Middle-earth, his sword is, is destroyed, he's killed, and his sword is broken. And it says... It was at that moment when all hope had faded that the son of the king took up his father's sword. When all hope was lost, the son of the king took up his father's sword. For us, this is our father's sword. It's the word of God. That's a genitive. That means that it belongs to him and it proceeds from him. It is the word of God. And you have been invited to wield it, to take up your father's sword. The scriptures that are in your hands, in these pews, on these screens, this is your Father's sword. So when you are tempted, when you are hard-pressed, when you are tired, defeated, alone, devastated, crushed, bruised, manipulated, downtrodden, ashamed, or accused, when all hope is lost, take up your Father's sword. Because where the sword of the King goes, guess what? The power of the King goes with it. So rest secure. Rest in the security that you've been given, in the future marriage that we will enjoy 
with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because it's been won by His blood, it's been guaranteed by the resurrection, and it is defended by His sword. So read it, learn it, memorize it, hold fast to it, internalize it. Counteract the negative narrative that you're given over and over and over again with positive, with truth from the Word of God. Trust it no matter what. Find your security in Christ. Break up with your ex. Get rid of her. Get rid of him. Leave it behind. Whatever it is that keeps you from pursuing Christ. Get ready for your marriage. To our marriage. Which means either accepting Christ for the first time. If you've never done that, I would love to tell you how. In our next steps room. And if you've done that, begin to pursue Him. Follow Him in everything that you do. And then take up your Father's sword. And let's fight on until we win the victory. Ultimately, that Christ wins the victory for us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I give you praise because you have not abandoned us, you have not left us alone, but you have called us out to leave behind that which devastates and destroys us and ultimately will kill us. To leave that behind and to pursue you and to follow you and to make ourselves ready for the day when we will be with you forever. And you've given us the tools, the equipment we need to fight on and to have victory even today. So Lord, we look forward to the ultimate victory. We pray that you would come soon to deliver us and to rescue us. But until then, we hold fast. Pray that you would hold us fast. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.